The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Last year marked the 50th anniversary since John Lennon released his hit song, Imagine. Rolling Stone has since named that song one of the top 20 songs of all time. Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono wrote the song as an anthem for worldwide unity and peace. In it, they write, imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us in the world will be as one. There is a reason why Lennon's song resonated so deeply in his time and while it's continued to do so to this very day. The world is a broken place full of hurt, disappointment, and division. The problem, though, with Lennon's song is that it's not centered on a true reality but rather an idealistic desire for humanity to simply choose to set aside our differences, all that divides us and the hurt that we have caused one another to come together in peace and love forever. Instead, 50 years later, we still find ourselves amidst a world that is ravaged by the same or worsened divisions and hardships that inspired Lenin to write this anthem in his day. In a time of such political, cultural, and personal division, our passage this morning gets right to the heart of where true unity is found and how we as the church can display this beautiful truth to a watching and broken world. 
The book of Ephesians is a letter of cosmic proportions. Written by the Apostle Paul, the first half of the letter unfolds what God's glorious plan of salvation and the mystery of his will, that is, as Paul says, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. He goes on to describe how in unfolding this great plan and carrying it out, God made the Gentiles joint heirs to the promise with the Israelites and has brought all of those who are saved through faith as members together of Christ's body, the church. We then arrive at our passage today where Paul begins to move from the doctrinal foundation he established in the first part of the letter to the practical implications for how we ought to live now in light of these tremendous blessings we have received in Christ. If I were to give you one statement that I think summarizes our passage this morning, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, it would be this. We are to maintain the unity that God has given us in his spirit, serving one another in truth and love, so that we will grow mature in Christ. We are to maintain the unity that God has given us in his spirit, by serving one another in truth and love so that we will grow mature in Christ. I have three points that I think help prove or or support this main idea that we'll walk through today. First, we'll look at our charge in verses 1 through 3. Then we'll look at our source in verses 4 through 6. And finally, we will consider our aim in verses 7 through 16. First, our charge. Paul describes himself in the beginning of our passage as a prisoner of the Lord, and this is the second time that he has done so, so far in his letter, referring to his imprisonment. And this is to remind us of the authority that Paul has to charge us in such a way. He has taken so seriously the truth of the gospel and his responsibility to proclaim and uphold it that he has been put in prison for his faith. And now he is writing from prison with the mindset that these truths aren't just truths to him or ideas or or things to think about. No, he lives by what he preaches, and he has been given authority by God to call us to do the same thing. In verse 1, Paul charges us to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. What is this calling? It is the blessing of salvation that Paul proclaimed in chapter 1. In light of the gift that we have been given in Jesus Christ, we are now being called to live in such a way that is worthy of that blessing that we have received. It's important to note that what Paul is asking us here is not a works-based righteousness. He's not calling us to do these things in order that we may earn our salvation No, he is urging us to live in light of what has already been done. He told us this in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that our salvation is not of ourselves based on our works, but that we are saved by faith through Jesus Christ and created in him. And this again is clear in the way that Paul has set up and written his letter. In the first half of the letter, Paul only commanded us to action one time. And we see throughout the second half of his letter that he commands us to action nearly 40 
times. He builds the foundation of what we have received from God through our adoption in his son, Jesus Christ, and then calls us to live in a manner worthy of such a great salvation. As we move to verses 2 and 3, Paul tells us what it means to live in this way. Paul goes on to explain both the attitudes we are to cultivate and the actions we are to take. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The attitudes that Paul outlines for us in verse 2 are those that Christ himself modeled. So Paul is charging us to be imitators of Christ. We see in the Gospel of Matthew that these are the very words that Jesus used to describe himself, gentle and humble. Therefore, to imitate Christ is to model gentleness and humility and to seek after it. To, as Paul describes in his letter to the Philippians, to consider others, value others, more than yourselves. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. He goes on to say, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. How do you measure up to this description of Jesus? In your workplace, are you reactionary? Quick to pass judgment on others when something doesn't go as you had hoped or you fail? In your parenting, are you easily exasperated, growing harsh with your children after you have to repeat the same, time, ten, the same thing for the tenth time this week? In your interactions online, are you quick to point a finger, trigger happy to get affirmation from those on your side or to undermine those you oppose? If that is you this morning, Look to Jesus in gratitude for what he has done for you, what you were unable to do for yourself. In gentleness and love, Paul tells us in Philippians, he, Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Look to Christ, your servant king, and ask that the Spirit would help you to imitate his gentleness and humility. Paul also calls us to emulate patience that is shown through forbearing with one another in love. We see throughout Scripture God demonstrating this kind of forbearing patience as people rebelled against him over and over again. 
Paul himself pointed to the same forbearing patience shown towards us earlier in his letter, in chapter 2, when he said, While we were still dead in our sins, in his rich mercy and grace, God made us alive in Christ because of his great love for us. Now Paul is calling us to have this same attitude with one another. Here at RCBC, we covenant together as members that we will bear patiently with one another and freely forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. Is this an attitude, members of RCBC, others that are, are with us today? Is this an attitude that you regularly strive to cultivate? Or are you quick to grow weary by this commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Isaac Adams is a pastor of Iron City Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and he said this, It is easy to feel like you are forbearing with everybody else at church, and you are doing all of the forbearing. The reality is, folks at your church are bearing with you just as much, if not more, than you are with them. Brothers and sisters, bearing with one another in love is not, quick to, is not being quick to flee when a relationship gets difficult or when we have been wronged or have wronged another. Rather, it is believing the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing them as Christ sees them, a new creation united to him. We are to imitate the unconditional and continual love shown to us by God through his Son, moving toward one another in reconciliation through repentance, forgiveness, and love. So, brothers and sisters, do not begrudge this task that we have been given. Rather, take joy as you seek to bear with one another in love. One of the greatest ways that we can serve one another in this church is to give of ourselves as we walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ through the ups and downs of life. Cultivate the practice of moving toward one another in love rather than pulling away even when it's hard, even when we feel that we have to sacrifice our own sense of dignity to do so. After all, that's what Christ has done for us. With these attitudes in mind, Paul calls us to action. He says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In urging us to make every effort, Paul is telling us that maintaining this unity, it's going to take work. It's going to be hard. We're going to have to fight for it. But he calls us to do so with eagerness through the power of his Holy Spirit. I'm sure we could all sit here today and tell stories of churches that we have been a part of or that we have witnessed um, that have been decimated by disunity. Several months ago, in an evening devotional that I gave on Genesis 3, I gave a warning that Satan would give us no time to get our bearings as a new church plant. He wasted no time with Adam and Eve, and he would waste no time with us. It's easy to think in these early days as a new church that unity is either assumed or to, dis to dismiss small seeds of disunity in our hearts as simply and excuse, simply excusing it away as unity taking time to develop. 
Satan would want nothing more than to sow seeds of disunity now that would ravage our church and what the Lord is doing in and through us here at RCBC months, years, even decades from now. Guard your hearts, brothers and sisters, against the temptation to move away in opposition to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Church unity wouldn't mean much unless we stuck to it, even when it's difficult. It's easy for us to stand here, sit here today, and think about and hear these words about unity and say, amen, yes, I affirm this, I believe this, but the local church and what God has given us here is our opportunity to actually live out the unity of the Spirit and put it on display for the world. So how are we to do this? Paul says this act of maintaining unity is to be done by the power of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And we learned in chapter 2 that Paul speaks of the beautiful reality that the Gentiles had been brought near to God through Jesus Christ and were now fellow citizens of God's people. He says that it is Christ who is the peace between the Israelites and the Gentiles, tearing down, breaking, and destroying the barrier of hostility and disunity between them, making the two peoples one. Paul then goes on to pray that the believers will be strengthened by the power of the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Therefore, in our effort to maintain unity among us, guarding our, guarding our hearts against the temptations towards disunity, let us look to Christ, our bond of peace, and ask that the Spirit would help us, strengthen us in this work, to have an attitude like that of our Savior, humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, in love towards one another. Ultimately, unity means nothing unless there's something concrete that unifies you. And what unifies us as a people? Jesus Christ unifies us. May we look to one another and see in each other joint heirs to the kingdom, united by our one and true king. Next, we have our source. Paul continues to explain the nature of our unity in verses 4 through 6, highlighting seven truths that are rooted in the gospel that those who are Christians share in common. He writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. As we walk through these seven truths, it's clear that Paul is taking from the foundation that he established in the first half of his letter and applying it to the basis for his charge to us. And the order that Paul lists these truths in is meant to be seen as a logical progression, starting with one body, as that is the main focus of his argument, unity displayed within the church of Christ. While this should definitely be interpreted as the universal body of Christ, we see the local church as a manifestation of that universal body. And so, we should, the local church, it, sorry, thus the source of Paul's 
establishment for our unity as believers should both be applied to our context here in the local church and to the universal church on the whole. Paul moves from the one body, our oneness as a church, and points to the Spirit, which we saw in verse 3, is the one that dwells within us, the body of Christ, and is the power by which we maintain that unity among us. Next, he reminds us of our hope, which is the salvation that has been graciously given to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who we are to see in his lordship as the ruler and authority over the church. In receiving the gift of salvation through faith, believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. In all of this, all of what unites us is under the gracious work of the one true God, the Father, who is preeminent over, in, and through all things. If you are here this morning and you do not consider yourself to be a Christian, I want you to know we are so glad that you are here. I recognize that you could be many other places right now, giving your time to something else, but you have made the decision to come and and sit and listen to the word of God proclaimed. And so I want to welcome you and and just tell you again, we're so glad that you are with us. While I have focused heavily on application to Christians, the reality is if you have not put your hope in Jesus Christ, then your greatest problem is one of disunity. The clear message of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians is that there is one and only one way by which we can be saved and unified with one another. You see, we were created by God to be united to him, to love, to enjoy, to glorify him forever. Yet in our pride and rebellion, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We severed our relationship with God through our sin, following after the ways of the world instead of fixing our eyes vertically upon him. Our hearts crave unity. We see the division, the destruction, and the despair in our world around us, and we strive in our own strength or look to the strength of those more powerful than us to fix it, to try to solve it, to make it right. The reality is no solution that we or anyone else can bring will help fix the problem of our sin. What is the cause of the despair, the destruction, the division that we see in our world? The good news, though, is that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect and a good life without sin to the glory of God the Father. He died on our behalf, bearing the full weight and punishment of our sins, and three days later rose victorious from the grave. So then, if you believe with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you repent of your sin and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As Paul has said throughout this book, this is the gift of God, the good news of salvation, that we who were once dead in our sins would be made alive, reconciled, and united to him through Christ. 
So if you are here this morning and you have not turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, please do not delay. His compassion is great, and he is rich in mercy towards those who come to him. If that is something that you have questions about or that you want to talk more about, I'll be back at the back of the room at the end of, after the service. Anybody here that is a member of this church would love to talk to you about that good gift of salvation that is offered through Christ. Another thing that is clear in Paul's declaration of the truths that unify us is they are founded in who God is, what he has done for us, and our response to that incredible, indescribable gift. We have the unity of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what he has done for us in our salvation, and our response in faith, in baptism, in unity as a body of Christ. Paul was writing to encourage Christians around Ephesus of their unity, despite their ethnic differences as Jews and Gentiles. And we see throughout the letters of the New Testament examples where they struggled to see past their differences, and we today still struggle to do the same. So let me ask you, who do you naturally gravitate towards? Perhaps it's someone in a similar life stage, another mom with young kids, a group of fellow singles, families whose children go to the same school as yours do or who have children the same age as, as yours are, a brother or sister who likes the same sports team or has the same interest in a hobby that you do. Let me be clear, it's not bad to spend time with brothers and sisters who fit what I've just described. And actually, we should see those relationships as a good gift from God that he uses to encourage us. I want to encourage you, though, not to limit yourself to build deep relationships only with those who are just like you. Guard your heart against restricting the basis of your unity on what the world says brings oneness. Instead, look up and see what the Lord might do through the diversity of the members in your local church. My wife Casey and I often reflect that some of the people who have encouraged us most in our walk with the Lord, that have helped us see more clearly our sin and to fight it more fervently, have been those that we naturally wouldn't have gravitated towards. Those that are not like us. They don't think in the same ways that we do. They don't view the world in the same ways that we do. They, they, struck, they, look at our, they look at things differently, and they have come alongside of us, and they have helped us see a different perspective on our sin, on who God is, and helped spur us on in faith and good works. So let me encourage you, especially if you are a member at RCBC, look for an opportunity in the next few weeks to intentionally seek out someone that you don't know as well, someone that you might not naturally gravitate towards. Maybe it's someone that you haven't met yet or, or someone whose your paths don't necessarily cross on a regular basis. Seek them out. Be intentional. Get to know them. Ask them what the Lord has done in their life and seek to spur one another on in your common hope and faith in Jesus Christ. 
May we be a people here at RCBC that strive to go outside of our comfort zones, a church who sees the beauty and the diversity that the Lord has given us and prays all the more that he would increase it until his return. In doing this, when we seek this, we bear witness to the good he has done in uniting us together to the watching world. Thirdly, our aim. Now that Paul has given our charge to unity and the source by which our unity is based, he points us to our collective aim, which is maturity in Christ. Paul explains that the primary means of achieving this goal is through Christ's gracious giving of gifts to the church, which works together to build itself up in unity through unity in maturity. He sets up his argument through his interpretation of Psalm 68, 18, which reads, When you ascended on high, you took many captives, you received gifts from people. Psalm 68 is a celebration hymn, praising God for his victory over his enemies. And this verse describes God's victorious ascent to Mount Zion. Paul applies the meaning of this text to the resurrected Christ. He explains that Christ descended to the earth, becoming man among us, pointing again to Christ's great humility in the, his obedience even to the point of death. Paul then uses this text to call us back to the description of Christ's ascension in chapter 1. He wrote there in verses 19 through 21 that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul interprets this psalm for us, pointing to Christ's victorious exaltation, taking captive Satan, sin, and death. As was common in, for kings in David's time, they would bring back with them the rewards or the gifts that they had received in their victory in battle. Here too we see that Christ received gifts, but Paul is applying this text and telling us that he has now given those gifts to those who are his people. This again is a theme that Paul has throughout his letter to the Ephesians, Christ as the giver of gifts. He described to us that salvation is a gift of God, through Jesus Christ, and then he later said that he himself is a gift that God has given as a servant of the gospel by God's grace. Now he continues his point about Christ's gifts, highlighting the specific roles in the life of the church that Christ is given for the growth and edification of the body. He says, Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers— the apostles and prophets that Paul mentions are specific men in the early church who Christ used in the foundation and building of his church. He had already told us this in chapter 2. The evangelists are known for the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. And the pastors and teachers are joined together by that and clause, and they refer specifically to roles within the local church to aid in the care and equipping of local congregations. 
Paul says the purpose of these roles or gifts is to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. There are two observations that I think are evident in Paul's emphasis on these specific gifts and ones that I think we as a church should pay close attention to. First, these gifts are clearly purposed with teaching or proclaiming the word of God as the means by which they fulfill the role and build up the body. That is why we here at RCBC see biblical preaching as one of the top priorities of our church. We believe it is the words of God that truly transforms lives. And so while we may have a sermon on a particular topic from time to time, the regular cadence, the regular rhythm of the preaching of the word in the life of this church is to simply expose God's word to God's people and let it transform their lives one passage at a time. Second, the purpose and aim in these roles is to equip Christ's people for works of service. These leaders are not the sole doers of ministry. They are the sowers and the cultivators of it. Again, this truth gets to the very heart of the culture that we want to be evident here in our life together at RCBC. As Matt has shared on numerous occasions, the elders at RCBC are not the varsity team while the rest of the congregation sits on the bench watching from JV. No, the mission of this church is the collective responsibility of all of the members of the church, and it's our responsibilities as elders to support that in happening. Paul concludes by illustrating how this goal of corporate maturity takes place. He does so by contrasting where we came from, spiritual infants tossed to and fro from every kind of teaching, to where we aim to be, full maturity in Christ, the one who holds authority over the church. The means by which we are to carry out the work of ministry and grow into this maturity are twofold, to speak the truth to one another and to use the gifts we have been given from Christ. There is a distinct contrast that Paul gives us between what he describes as the cunning and crafting and deceitful tactics of false teachers and what he is calling us to instead. We are to speak the truth in love. Notice how Paul ends our passage today with the same characteristic that he started our passage at the beginning, love. This is to be the distinctive characteristic of our life together as a church. Whether we are bearing, one, bearing with one another or we are speaking the truth towards one another, all that we do is to be done out of love for one another. This is why when Paul wrote to the first his first letter to the Corinthians, he followed his section on spiritual gifts with the importance of our love for others being the motivational force that drives all that we do. Turn with me briefly, hold your finger in Ephesians, and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 13. It is here that Paul describes the nature of this kind of love that we are to have for one another. He writes, starting in verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, 
It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. How is it that we can display such a kind of love? I don't know about you, but when I read these characters, these, this definition of what love is, what Paul describes love is, I just feel utterly hopeless that I'm going to be able to do that. How are we to display this kind of love? Paul reveals how we do this when he prayed for believers in chapter 3. He writes that you may have the power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. We cultivate this kind of love by fixing our eyes on Christ, for in him is perfect love. We are to seek to love those whom he has brought together alongside us as he has loved us and he has loved them. In this love, we are also to use our gifts so that the church may grow in maturity in Christ-likeness. If you are a Christian, you have been given a unique responsibility from Christ to serve your church for the spiritual growth and development of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important to note that what Paul is saying here, his focus is not to outline the various gifts themselves. He's done that in other places in the New Testament. God's word does give us descriptions of what some of those spiritual gifts are, but his focus here is not the specific role itself, but that with the gifts that Christ has given you, Use them faithfully within the life of the church, always seeking to build your brothers and sisters up by the truth of his word and in the vast and gracious love that he has showed to you. As you come together in home groups this week, spend some time thinking of how you can give yourself up to serve those and help those around you grow in Christ-likeness. Paul is clear that the way to maturity is each person doing their part. Each and every one of us, every member, is vital to the spiritual health and growth of the body. What is it that you can be doing to serve and to love your brothers and sisters and encourage their spiritual growth? In this, our charge drives our aim. We are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In doing this, we each aim to use the gifts we have been given to build up the body of Christ in his truth and love. You know what the beauty of all of this is? Probably one of the most beautiful words in this passage, beautiful statements in this passage. Christ has already secured our victory in this endeavor. He has ensured that those whom he has called will reach the goal that he has established. Paul shared in chapter 2 that God created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he already has prepared in advance for us to do. And now he's telling us in verse 13 that through the equipping of God's Christ's people for these works of service, the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. These gifts have been given to us to accomplish what God has already promised that he will do through us. Notice how Paul says, until we all reach unity, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He does not say, if we all reach unity, but rather he implies that we will. This truth was also on the mind of Christ when he prayed to the Father in some of his last words here on earth, as Brandon read to us earlier from John 17. He said, for those that believe in the truth of the message of the gospel, he, Christ, has given the glory that he received from the Father through his Spirit, so that we may be brought to complete unity. When this unity is evident among us, we bear witness to the truth of who Christ is, and the love of God has shown through him to the watching world. In Christ, by the gracious act of God, through the work of the Spirit in us, our destiny has already been secured. May we be a people that collectively seeks to ask that the Spirit would help us to live in light of this reality and to pursue it with hopeful joy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you too, Lord, that for those who call upon your name, that you have brought us together as one in unity in the church. We pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen us by your Spirit, that we would not grow weary in doing good, that you would help us with faithfulness, look forward to the prize, which is ours in Christ Jesus, and spur one another on in love and in truth. It's in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.